So I want to just begin by reading this. Um, hopefully you can read along. I understand this is a little artsy. It's more of a collage of words, and it's not real easy. But I'm going to read it, and if you, if you can, just say it out loud with me. Can you do that? I'll read it first, and then second we'll read it together. It says, we are. That's always a little dangerous when we say we are, right? You don't want to say we are too many things because, you know, we're, we're pigeonholing ourselves in this statement. We are the wayward children of God, forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, who are being transformed by his power into his character. Can you say that? I think it's something we can all say, right? So let's say it together. We are the wayward children of God, forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, who are being transformed by his power into his character. Amen. That's a great line. And that is one of the kind of uh, columns that our church rests on, who we are. Last week we talked about who God is, and this week we're talking about who we are in relation to God. And, of course, it starts with us being broken, um, and that's true, right? All of us broken, everyone's sin, falling short of the glory of God, all that. So let me just kind of break away and we'll come back to all those thoughts and tell you that all across my life I've had this affinity, this attraction, this desire to places of peace, houses that God builds places and, and just pictures of those in literature and, and sometimes in real life. When Dave Willauer and I went to Israel, one of the things I found is in these Franciscan mon- monasteries all over the Middle East, there is just a, 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 a you want to pray when you get there. You, you walk in and you just go, I would love to stop and just pray. At one of those places um, in northern Israel, Dave and I talked, we just wanted to stay longer. There were these kind of olive orchards of, of trees, olive trees going down this walkway. And then you went into this, this monastery. It's just beautiful. And it wasn't so much visually beautiful as you just kind of felt like, wow, people have been praying here for a long time. That's a great picture, right? It's a restful picture. And uh, I, I've got a bunch of others of those pictures. One of those came when I was a kid. I, it, the, the hymn we sang last uh, reminded me of this. We ha- I read this book called The Hiding Place. You heard those words in the hymn. Uh, and the, that book was about the life of Corrie Ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman who she and her family actually allowed Jews to stay in their home and hid those Jews in this kind of secret hiding place in one of the upper floors of their house. Is this really wild house, multi-layers all over the place, built on over hundreds of years. But they hid these, these Jewish people during the Holocaust, and they actually were one step in a, in a series of steps where Jews were escaping Europe and getting free from the, from the Holocaust. And they ended up giving, um, some of them gave their lives to that. Her, her father and her sister were killed in a death camp because of that Ravensbrook. And there was this hiding place that they had for, for the uh, people who they could just hide from the enemy. And there was this amazing place. I went there when I was... Uh, about 20 years old, and I stood in that hiding place. You can still go there today, and it's a place of amazing peace. And there's still people studying the writings of the Ten Boom family because they were so committed and rooted in God's word. It was so written on their heart that they just couldn't imagine not being a part of the resistance movements as the Nazis took over Northern Europe. It was a, it was a space that they set apart to be a place of rest and of healing and of, of hiding for, for what God wanted to do. Amazing, amazing place. And they gave their lives, some of them, to that effort. Across the scriptures, one of the things that God just kind of continuously draws our attention to is the fact that he would like a a place of rest for us. 
right? He starts with the tabernacle in Exodus and he moves on to a temple in First Kings and he builds these things. Today, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is still a remnant of that and they've tunneled underneath it and you can go underneath the tunnels and there are people that, that in all hours of the day and night, it's open 24 hours a day, there's people that crawl underneath that, that Temple Mount and they meet with God and they pray down there. It's just amazing. You'll be walking along this tunnel. You kind of have to duck at points. And then all of a sudden you open up into a wide area and there's people on either side of you sitting in chairs and they're praying and they're sitting going, we're close to the house of God or where it once stood. Well, we know that one of the things that's happened is that God has called us to be that, that house, right? Not just Parker Ford Church, but in First Peter, it says that we're all living stones made a part of this temple that God is building up. There's these lines that tell us that, know you not, writes Paul, that you are the body, your body is the temple of the living God, that the temple has moved from some physical place to some place where God wants to meet with us. That's how God is. He wants to meet with us. The words on this this sheet, and I'm going to combine them in a story, but the, the words on this kind of piece of art and on the documents of our church, one of the things they're trying to do is create a home for us, a belief system for us in which we live. It tells us about us. And if those words are accurate enough, then they're going to create a place where we can indwell. We can sign on to every one of these words and we can find ourselves to be in a safer place with God because we've admitted to who we are and we've admitted to who he is and we've said we are here because of him, not because of us. That There's great safety in that. You know, no matter how messed up my kids get, and my kids, they're perfect because they're pastor's kids, but just theorize they're not. No matter how messed up they get, they can always come home, right? There's nothing my 10-year-old daughter could do that would keep me from allowing her back inside my house. One of the things about God is he's constantly calling us to his spiritual home. He's saying, please come back to me. So I want to begin with by thinking about those words at the very top end of this of this uh, piece of art. It says, the wayward children of God. I want to talk about that, and I want to combine it with the story that Jesus tells where he's talking about a home. There are these two wayward children, and then there's a house. That's us. Okay, and we need to read this story and I want you to see this 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 we are statement from the vantage point of this story that Jesus tells it's in Luke chapter 15. It'll be on the screen behind you. You can read along with me. You will certainly recognize it. These are for sure the wayward children we most think of when we think of wayward children. It says there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Who's this story about? What do you know the story as? The prodigal son. Now, be very careful about that. People have said that for years. This is the prodigal son. But notice who comes inside the house, okay? As you read this story, notice who actually makes it inside the house, the place of rest that God is calling him to. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And if you study the Middle East and the culture of that day, let me tell you that you didn't run if you were a man. To run, there better be something on fire for a man to pick up and run. They had these long robes and you had to kind of pick them up. It didn't look very dignified or noble. And if you're a rich landowner, as this man was, there is this kind of missing element where he's going, he's deciding to give up his dignity and go after his son. And he loves him so much. He picks up up the hem of his robe and he runs down the down the road and he, and he meets him and the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servant bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate great story right If we could just stop there. I just, this is where I wish we could end. Jesus, I just, I never get quite comfortable with Jesus. He never allows me to get quite comfortable because he tells these stories and he tells them in such a way that they draw you in and they say, yes, that is good. And then he turns it one step more, one degree more on the, on the cycle, one, one rotation more and my soul starts to churn. Because I love the story of any sinner who's come home. Most of the time when somebody says, I used to sin and God set me free, I always say, wow, that's awesome. God, you, you were a wayward child of God, and here you are in the house of God today. What a blessing. That's just awesome. And frankly, my soul personally just gets, I love the fact that, that, that some of the people in my life have been walking in terrible brokenness, and now they're walking in wholeness. I love that picture. But what happens next in the story is something different than sin. And let me tell you what I mean, but we'll read it first. It says, now his older son was in the field. Why did there have to be an older son? Why couldn't there have just been one son, one wayward child of God? You know, Jesus tells these stories about 99 sheep that stay behind and he chases down the one. He leaves the 99. He's the good shepherd who goes after the one. I like that one. That's good. But here there's two. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, hear those words and let them echo in your mind. He refused to go in. So we have one son who's a prodigal. He's a sinner, right? We would all say he's, the, the word sin in the Bible mostly means something that just says he missed the mark. And this guy fabulously missed the mark. Believe it or not, what was probably going on in the story is that the father had to sell a chunk of all that he owned in order to, he had to divest himself of his equity to give a good chunk of what he owned to this younger son, probably a third of his belongings. So they were actually selling a whole bunch of sheep, goats, who knows what, maybe some land and saying, okay, fine, you don't want to be a part of this family anymore. You are literally divorcing yourself from us. You, we, have, we have to sell things that everybody in town knows. That's this guy's, you know, such and such son's farm. You know, the, the farm I grew up, it was, it was Swanson and Son's farm. It was Bontice and Son's farm. There were all these farmers that had their sons and they all worked on the same farms. Well, that's what everybody knew. This was such and such a guy and his son's. And now it's just son. And what's more is they had to sell off a bunch of their land and a bunch of their stuff to give that younger son what he needed to go. And he goes on the road and he, I mean, it's gone in a matter of years or months. We're not sure how much. And then, and then this famine breaks out and he comes back. And yet the father embraces him and invites him into his house. And he comes all the way back from that much 
undignity, that much brokenness, that much shame into the house of God. But here's a a servant who's talking to his son, and the son says, I'm not going to go in. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The God of the universe in this metaphor, in this picture, comes out of his house and he finds this son and he says, please come in. He's ran to his prodigal son down the road and he's picked up the hem of his robe, even after he's lost belongings for this son and now is embracing him and welcoming him back. That's the picture of God. And here with this son who won't come in, he actually runs out in the field to help him and say, please come in, let me entreat you. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You sold all this land for this son and you let him celebrate and now you welcome him back. But what about me? But when his, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love that younger brother. Don't you? We love the guy who breaks it and comes back and gets humble and comes back to God. There's got to be another word for this older son. He's not a sinner, right? Would you call him a sinner? Some of you are yes, some of you are no. I like to ask these controversial questions. You're like, I don't know what to call him. It's not good. He's not coming into the house of God. The hiding place that God created for him, this son is avoiding. And the prodigal son, he avoided it for a while, but now he's come back. And the older brother who looks so righteous and so good, well, he's out there, you know. No, I'm not coming in. If this is how the rule of God works, well, count me out, God. That's what he's saying, right? I don't want to be a part of a house where people can come in who look like that. He spent all of our father's money, one third of maybe all that he had on prostitutes and drunkenness and all this stuff. What? Who knows what stuff he's bringing with him? Let's leave him out in the cold. And this older brother says, I, I, if this is the rules, then leave me out in the field. I resonate with that older brother. It's easy to be self-righteous. Let me tell you about two types of failure. One of them is sin. Sin just means missing the standard that God has set for our actions, words, thoughts, or motivations. So, okay, honestly, we're all sinners, right? The Bible tells us this. We've all sinned and we've come short of the glory of God. How many of you have not had a wrong motivation, a wrong thought, a wrong word, or a wrong action this week? Raise your hands. We're an honest church. When we say we are the wayward children of God, we truly are wayward. Every now and then I catch myself and I think I'm doing something really good. I, you know, my wife asked me to do something. I said, yes, I'll do that. That's great. I love you. And then I realized that there's kind of a quid pro quo, a give and take. And I'm actually giving so that later I can, you know, hey, can I take? The other day Shelby called, texted me and she said, I am really busy at work. What if I work and stay till seven? I said, that is fine. But Friday night, I have a counseling session that I need to be at, and it's at the Schuylkill River, and it's going to start at 10 p.m. And she texted back all of these question marks. Now, now let me interpret that for you. I, she's asking to stay at work late, and I'm saying, yes, if. And the counseling session was a fishing expedition with one of our new members from the second service. And I said, you can stay at work if I can go fishing Friday night. 
And she kind of, you could see the text back and forth. She kind of laughed and it was funny. But my motivations, oh yeah, you can stay at work. I'm I'm such a good husband. I'll make dinner for the kids. No problem. But Friday night, I'm going to go catfishing on the Schuylkill River in the dark. It's going to be fun. And, uh, you know, the joke, we, we, we do this all the time. That's a really funny example. But there's other worse examples. Moments when I give because I expect that other people give back. Moments when, it, when, I, when I pull up to a stop sign and I let that person go and then they say, no, 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 you go. No, no, you go. And we have this kind of back and forth. Oh, good. So they actually respect me enough to not just go the first time. We, put, we, we move our hand, that Pennsylvania wave thing that you guys all do. You know, in the Midwest, nobody's ever seen that. But yeah, you know, we all wave and okay, we're good because we, you know, cut each other off in traffic. Oh, yep, we're good. You know, that we, our motives, where are they? Come on, honestly. When we give a gift and then... We don't get one. When we send out that Christmas card list and we have this list and then we notice we send one to that brother and he didn't send it back to us. You know, no Christmas card from his family. Where am I at? And it, what, are, what are our motivations? There's kind of sneaky little deceptions that we all enter into, right? If we're really honest with ourselves, it's really hard not to be honest. I was listening to a sermon this past week and the pastor admitted that his wife... Um, she had gotten a rug and she had put it in the garage for him to install. He had to move the whole dining room table, pick up the dining room table, put the rug down. And he took a picture out of it. He showed her the rug. And he said, this is what it looks like. And he said, I think it looks pretty bad. And she said, well, well, then just take it out and move that table again, uninstall the whole thing. And he says, well, maybe we should just wait until you get home so you see it. And then he said it occurred to him that he was actually waiting so she could help him move the table. It was not actually about her opinion at all. That's how we think, right? We look good, but we're not actually good. We have sin in our hearts. That's true. You know what happens when that sin starts to grow and it it becomes a bigger deal? There's another word for that. Sin is something where you miss the mark. And you know, most of the time we can kind of track back and see in the last day or the last week how we've missed the mark. But when sin, we start to get away with it and then it becomes something that our children get away with and our grandchildren, it, it starts to move generationally. It starts to become an accepted part of the norm. I was at a funeral recently and the, the, the guy who was giving the eulogy actually shared that the deceased, he paid more than he needed to every year in taxes. Who does that? And he said, no, this country has changed their ethic, he said. He said, I actually need to pay more because I live in such a great country. I have a great sewer system. I have a, I have a great public transportation system. I have a great communication system. He said, all of these things, our country is, I, I need to pay more in taxes. And every year, he refused to claim the dependence on his tax return. I thought, Wow. I know so many people who are trying to get paid under the table, quote-unquote, who are trying to live lives that are just kind of, well, that's okay. It's not a big deal. Take what you can get legally. And this guy said, no, this is my pay to our country. That it, and I'm not telling you to do this, but he said, my ethic is that I'm so blessed that I should be pouring in more. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, over time, little sins become bigger perspectives that become so normal to us that we forget that they're sin at all. What I suspect with this older son is that he did all those things, but he didn't do them for the right reason. And there was this subtle little tiny missing of the mark that nobody would see unless you were God because he was looking inside of this guy's heart. And what was inside of his heart was something where he was doing all the right stuff, but he was doing it for the wrong reasons. 
He was punching the religious ticket. He was checking the box. He was showing up in church and he was giving a little bit of money. He was doing all the things you do if you look like a good religious person. But when it came down to whether the, he wanted to enter into the house of God the way God called him to, he said no because God's grace was too much and he wasn't playing by a grace-filled set of rules. He was playing by a, a set of rules that were actually about his personal effort, right? And that little bit of motivational sin turned into something larger and it got so big that it all of a sudden birthed this huge, gigantic moment where he says, I don't even want to see my brother. And frankly, if my dad loves my brother, I don't want to see my dad. Scary how that happens, isn't it? There's a word for that. Let me tell you about that word. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's this word. It's translated this in English. Whoops, that's sin. This is iniquity. It's an ingrained cultural marker that develops from long-term acceptance of sin. Most of these things we never catch. Most of these things are things that our grandparents started to do and that our parents did, and we all just agreed that it's okay. You know, my dad was famous for speeding. At one point, he was a youth pastor. I, I, I don't mind diming him out at all on this. He, he, in Michigan, if you got 10 points on your license, you lose your license. And at one point, he was a pastor when he did this. He got to nine points when I was a kid. And my mom was deathly worried she was going to have to be driving him to work every day. No DUIs, no terrible. He just always was going about 12 to 15 miles over the speed limit on these back roads through Michigan. And people would pull him over and her cops would pull him over. And he kept getting ticket after ticket. He's always late everywhere he went. You know, I grew up thinking, you know, no matter how fast you can get away with, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's a, just don't get pulled over. That was my dad's kind of standard. Well, that's not what the rules are, right? There's a long list of little tiny things I can tell you about my childhood where it was fun, it was good, it was no big deal, but, you know, those things get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden they get really large, right? There's a guy named Bertie Madoff who started to get away with a few financial moves, right? Just a few little, well, I'll take from this person and I'll give to that person, and he developed this kind of small financial scheme. Well, it was so productive that it went into the billions of dollars, and lots of people lost Hundreds of millions and millions of dollars. Scary how that happened. It started with a little bit of sin and then it grew and it became a culture in his whole firm. One of his, one of his kids just had to finally turn him in because the iniquity grew. That happens in our culture. Iniquity becomes something of a gigantic issue in our land and in our sinfulness that it's beyond individual sin. You can't even confess it. Like I just stole from somebody or I just lied about somebody or I just did this. Instead, it's just kind of accepted that this is part of our culture. And God says, I want to change that. I'm not okay with that. I want to, I want to redeem not just your soul and see you go to heaven. I want to see your culture changed and transformed. And we have to admit that. And in so doing, we join God in his house and his beautiful plan for what we're all about. You know, when we admit we're the wayward children of God, I, that's a, just an incredibly hopeful phrase. Why is that hopeful? I know I'm not that great. Do you know you're not that great? And when you say, I'm wayward, I have a problem, I'm rooted in iniquity, and I'm actually somebody who struggles with sin, when we say these things about ourselves, that means there's hope that we might actually be able to get better. <laughs> what a great thought. One of the arguments that I get into when I'm cheering Jesus often is people just say, well, they won't change. If a person's born that way, they will always be that way. That's not true in Jesus, right? And when you say I'm a wayward child of God, when you say I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict or I'm a liar, I'm somebody who consummately cheats, I just keep going and going and going. When we say these things, it's the first step to changing it, right? 
So one of the things our church has decided upon is whether we're prodigal children who are self-righteous or, 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 or who are sinners and broken and lost and we just all come in here looking kind of broken or whether we're the, the other son, the older son who's rooted in iniquity that's just self-righteousness that's gotten big. It's a religious system of sin. Whatever it is, we have to start by confessing all that. We just have to say we are the wayward children of God because when we begin with this, the hope begins. At this moment, when we say we are the wayward children of God, God's hope comes into our lives. God's grace comes into our lives. And he says, I can take you from there to someplace good. But if you start thinking of yourself like this older son does, we come in like this and God says, I can't, I can't go anywhere with that. You think you're so great, you don't need me anyway. There's so much hope in just admitting who we are. My, you've heard me tell this story, but one of my closest friends, he and his wife, they were heroin addicts and they got busted in the streets of Coatesville. He got busted 17 times before somebody put him in jail. He loves, he tells me these stories. I just can't believe they actually happened. But I met him. He was a realtor and, and my friend Bill and Bill just, the first time he met me, five minutes into the conversation, he said, I was a heroin addict. You should know that. And he said it like, do you really want to trust me to be your realtor after that? You know, he went from that to being all sorts of great things in our church. He became an elder. We put him in charge of our finances. And you maybe have heard me talk about this, but he actually, when we put him in charge of our church finances, he said, you need to know that I was in a church in Lancaster County once. And there's kind of the, the first church I really started to attend. And when the offering plate went past, I actually took money out instead of put it in. He admitted it. He told our whole leadership team this. He said, but I'm changed by the grace of God and I'm somebody different. I was a wayward child of God. We said, here, be in charge of our church finances. Never had any problem. Wonderful manager of our church's money. That was in Michigan. He's not here. But the wayward children of God, that admission means that we look at these things and we say, that's who we are. You know, one thing it means is a word. This is something I've prayed for about 15 years over this area. Fifteen years ago, God just kind of drew my attention to this passage of Scripture in Isaiah. And, and he just kind of has, has rooted me in it. And one of my Bibles that I had at that time, I've been about four Bibles removed from that Bible. I wear them out, you know. And I, I had this Bible, and I underlined the whole thing. It was, it's from Isaiah 58. I want to read it for you. Because when we say we're the wayward children of God, this becomes possible. It says, if you take away the yoke from your midst the pointing finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then here's the promise. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom as the, new, the, as the noonday sun. Just picture that. If the light shone in our land and God became powerful for all of us. Now, look at the top end of it. If you take away the yoke from your midst and then this line, the pointing finger. Phil Yancey tells a story about a woman who was a prostitute and she ended up having a child and that child became a prostitute right alongside her. And they, they, she ran, he ran across this couple of people in Chicago and he said, well, did you ever think to come to a church? And she got this horrible look on her face and said, why would I ever go to a church? They would just point their fingers at me and say, why would you come in here? When we admit we're the wayward children of God, we give up our right to point the finger, Right? No longer can we point the finger and speak wickedness because we are the people who admit we've already come from a place of wickedness and we're already, and we're, and we're still kind of embroiled in this wickedness and there's iniquity that's involved in our culture and we look at each other. This culture that we're in is broken and the sin that we're a part of has broken us. We don't look across and say, or we shouldn't, well, I don't do what that person does, right? 
And when we give up that pointing finger, when we give up the right to judge our brothers and sisters or the people who are coming to Christ or the people even who are yet to come to Christ, what happens is that the light rises in the darkness and the gloom becomes like the noonday sun. Isn't that a beautiful picture? If we would give up the religious kind of ability to point and look and go out there, those people are messed up then what happens in here is we are changed to be accepting and God can shine on us in a new way. It goes all the way back to 2,700 years ago. Isaiah prophesying that. What a thought. What a thought. We need to move forward, and I want to just go from there, and I want you to kind of let something happen in your spirit this morning. These words, we get past the wayward children of God, and we get to two words, forgiven and redeemed. Redeemed means that we're bought, Right? It starts, that that word comes from Exodus, where the children of Israel are unenslaved by God's liberating power, ten plagues that are that are kind of poured out all over Egypt, and they walk into freedom so they can worship him. The rest of the Bible uses that as kind of the prevailing metaphor for what it means to walk in the presence of God. We move from slavery to sin, slavery to the enemy, to freedom in Christ. We are, it's for freedom that we have been set free, according to Galatians 5. And we are forgiven. 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those two words, they go all over the Bible, passage after passage, roots that in the character of God and says God loves to forgive. He loves to redeem. He loves to pull us back like prodigals and self-righteous older brothers who need to come back to the house of God. One of the things I love about our church vision is we're headed towards this building plan. And this isn't just a plug for the building plan. I just want you to know. I'm not trying to plug you for that and say, okay, we need to build or any of that. I just have this thought that God really wants a spiritual house on this land. One of the things I think he's looking for is a place of rest that echoes what's going on in our belief system about us beyond us into the art and the building that we're surrounded by. A place of peace where people can come and meet God. Isn't that a great picture? When we realize that we're forgiven and redeemed, we enter into that house. When we say we're the wayward children of God, well, then we have this access to God that's birthed through the grace that Jesus pours out because of the cross and because of the resurrection. There's this kind of transformation in our lives. Now, if I have one thing that I believe you don't believe and that I don't believe, that's it. I'm convinced that most of us know we're sinners somewhere deep within us. We might not be able to put our finger on that sin, and we may get self-righteous and judgmental, but one of the problems with us is we don't have as big a view of the forgiveness of God as what he has. We don't think that all of these promises that the scriptures reveal to us are really for us or they're as powerful as they seem to be. So what I want to do for a moment is instead of preaching, I just want to read to you scriptures. i got a bunch of them, okay? And I want you to just sit back and you can read along on the screen or you can listen with your hearts and let, just take it in. If you shut your eyes, I won't think you're asleep, okay? If you are asleep, somebody elbow you, you know, next door. But I want you to receive this stuff because the Bible begins early and ends late with constant reminders that God's character is a God that forgives and redeems. He is cleansing and renewing. And many of us walk with sin in our lives that I think we could be gotten, could be gotten rid of if we believed as much as God believes that he's capable of forgiveness and grace. We need to let go of some stuff and enter in. So as soon as we admit we're the way we're children of God, what's critical right now is that we then move to the place where we say God's grace and God's power to transform us and change us and be who we're called to be. That's amazing. So listen to these scriptures from all across the scripture. I I tried to build as many of them in as I could from all sorts of places. We'll begin with Isaiah. Come now. Just listen with your spirit for a second. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Isn't that beautiful? Just picturesque. Your sins are like red, dropped in in the snow on a snowy day, and I'm just going to cover that whole thing up and make it white again. Though they be, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 118. This from Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. From Acts 3.19 and 20. Repent therefore and turn back. That's what that word repent means. It means turn to the teachings of Jesus instead of the, the culture that you've lived in. Turn towards Jesus that you may that you, your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How many of you need just times of refreshing where you're rooted in some iniquity or some sin, or maybe it's just a culture of unforgiveness and a lack of grace where you're just going, my soul just doesn't feel like a well-watered place. It actually feels like a desert. I'm dry. I'm dark. I'm not feeling the light that God promises. This one says, turn back. Accept the grace again. This from Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, from Isaiah, it says these words and you have to think across the Bible, I am is one of those lines, right? That's the line that God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am the Hayah in Hebrew. I, I am he. And he says, I am the God who does this, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that beautiful? And he roots it again and again in I am. You should know, I am this God who does this. I am the God and the only God who can do that. From Psalm 103, one of the greatest prophecy or promises in all of the scripture, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And last, from Micah 7, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, that's that cultural sin that kind of gets rooted in our lives, and passing over transgression, that's the sins that we just do every day, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that beautiful? God starts early and ends late all the way through the scriptures. Beginning in Genesis, it shows him forgiving. And in the end, at the end of Revelation, it shows him with people not weeping, not crying, and entering into a kingdom where Jesus is actually the presiding ruler over a kingdom of light. This is our heritage. This is what God has called us to. And when we say we are the children, the wayward children of God, forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, we have this amazing ability to say, this is where we've been, and we live in that reality. We never get to say, no, I'm not a heroin addict. No, we'll always have that past. Whatever our sins are, those things are always back there, and they're not reminders of how much shame we should feel. They're not how much we should be broken or not step into things that God calls us to. No, those are just things that remind us how good God is. Right? That's how, that's how good God is to take people who have messed up their lives this much and who have come from a broken past and a people who have iniquity all throughout their culture. Isaiah at one point meets God in Isaiah chapter 6 and he has this moment with God where he has this thing that happens and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he says this line, I'm from a people of unclean lips. He sinned and he's from people who have always sinned 
And he's like, I don't know how to get past that. The word woe is actually a funeral word. What Isaiah is saying is, I'm going to die because God is this good and I'm that bad. And then God says, no, let me touch your lips with, with, a, with a coal and let me heal you and let me tell you that I'm going to use you to be my prophet. That's Isaiah's commissioning service. And it begins with Isaiah saying, I'm so messed up. I'm from a people who have sinned and I have sinned and I can't possibly serve God. And God says, no, this is the moment when you start to serve me. Isn't that beautiful? I just can't get over this. And I read you all those scriptures because I want you to know the Bible can't get over this either. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the minor prophets or the major prophets, the poets and the Psalms or the Gospels in the New Testament or Paul or the writer of Acts, whatever it might be, Luke, they're all writing this same set of thoughts. God is a God who forgives. You repent, you confess. He loves people who give in and say, yes, Lord God, we are wayward. You know, all of us are supposed to be prodigals. That's what we do. None of us gets to be an older brother. We all have to enter into the same house. We all have to enter into God's rest. We all have to admit this is how we get in, by admitting the fact that we are failures. And that's okay because God says, I'm removing your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will take those things that stand out to you and to your relatives and to your family like they're crimson, and I will turn them as white as snow. But you've got to be honest. You start with, we are. We start with, I am. I am a person who has this failure in my life. I am a person who has had this failure in my life. But today, I'm walking in the grace of God. There's one more step. It says this. We are being transformed by his power into his character. And let me just read two scriptures for that about God's transforming power. This is from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God's presence in our midst is slowly, and sometimes not so slowly, transforming us to look like him and to move us from kind of this faded, wayward children of God glory where the image of God is still kind of resonant within us. We all have that picture that we were created in God's image, but it's not a whole lot of glory because we've broken it and been a part of so much brokenness, but he's moving it to this glorious place where we look like his son. One more line, and you'll recognize this from Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as the day of, on the day of Christ Jesus. I love that picture of the fact that God is not done. When we say we're wayward children of God, what we're admitting is we're still a part of that broken past, and we're moving into a future where we will be absolutely unbroken and healed and cleansed, and that will happen when Jesus actually rules. What a picture. So we live in between these two times because we admit that we have this past and we admit that we have this future. And in the middle, we have grace, right? Redemption, forgiveness. We have been bought with a price. It wasn't cheap. It was free to us and terribly expensive to God. But we are bought with this price. The way we're children of God, forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, we're being transformed by his power into his character. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to bless you and just say, Lord God, we ask that over this congregation you would move in our lives. Lord, that we would become a people who are deeply, deeply rooted in becoming like your character, and that that would come because we accept your grace so much that we depend on nothing else. Lord, even the things that we think we do to participate in your life, they're only space creators. 
for the fact that you want to move in our lives. And you take that space we give you and you do transform us, but it's you transforming. It's not even us reading the scriptures, not even us praying, not even us giving of our money. Not, those things don't transform. It's those things that create space for you to move in our lives and then you transform. And God, we would ask that you would help us to be so confessional and so honest with each other that we are a people that is that are, that are far from self-righteous, that we don't walk in that iniquity, that you begin to heal the things that are a part of our culture. What we all know in this, in this time is that we have been a part of a broken culture. We're not living in a time when we can look at each other and saying that, that, that our country has it right or that our area has it right. We can't even say our church has it right. Quite frankly, we are walking in a brokenness that we need to be healed from. And so we begin by saying we are the wayward children of God and we rely and need deeply your grace to redeem and forgive us. And then we need to see you transform us so that we could, so that we could just kind of show your glory to the people around us and to live it into each other's lives. What a picture, God. What a blessing that is. What a picture it is to know that Jesus has rooted us in this. So we go in peace knowing that you have called us and that the power that holds us together in this spiritual home, it's not a power that we build. It's not a power that our pastors, our elders, our church board, any of that stuff. We, we don't get here because of any of that, of those things. We get there because of the power of Jesus Christ and because of what you have offered us. We pray these things in parting as we go in Jesus' name.